CGM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor On on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. This first interview, folks, is a post-dated one, so some of the events referred to may already have happened. In this segment of our show, Trevor Gordon will be giving us an update on his epilepsy work. So last time you were on, uh, you were telling me about a petition for better epilepsy training for law enforcement officials. Uh, can you take me through a little bit of the ongoing need for this? So we're doing the petition, as you mentioned. Uh, we're just trying to get as many signatures as possible to a level that we think at least, at least in our opinion, will be taken a little more serious when we approach uh, the organization that's in charge of these courses, making them mandatory. Uh, I don't think we're at that magic number yet, so that's why we're encouraging as many people to sign the petition as possible, even those that have signed the petition, to get their friends and family, acquaintances to sign it as you know, to get as many signatures as possible. So we're still at the, the point of, you know, focusing on getting people to sign that petition with the hope that the course that is sitting in a portal that the police have access to um, makes that course mandatory. What would be some of the benefits of better training for the police in terms of epilepsy? I think the benefit would be not only for, obviously, the, 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 the person that has epilepsy, but I think it would make the police officer feel more comfortable in dealing with the situation. Like, to not to know that if there is a little bit of, uh, uh, if there is a little bit of uh, a reaction from the client or the person that has uh, epilepsy or is having a seizure, that it's not intentional um, and it's not meant in a violent way to hurt the, the police officer so if the, if the police 
officer had more training concerning someone that has epilepsy and has seizures and learning all the different types of seizures, because not all seizures are the same, I think that would give the police officer a little more comfort and, and reassurance of dealing with the situation. So, in other words, it would take some of the uh, possible assumptions that this person might uh, might be a danger or might be on some illicit substance when, uh, in fact, it might be a medical response having epilepsy. Yeah, and I mean, again, as I've said before, like, we're not, this, this petition and, you know, what we're saying is not meant to um, disrespect police officers or throw them under the bus. I mean, it's a hard, hard job that the police have to do. Uh, it, this, this is just about making sure that they have all the proper education so that they can do that job that they already do that much better, you know? So that's sort of what we're looking for. We're not here to say that the police did something, you know, uh, that the police do things wrong or that they, you know, we all, I think, can learn. Every day, I mean, I've worked with an epilepsy organization for almost eight years, and I'm still learning, you know? So I think it's always great to learn and get as much training as possible. So that, that's, that's our hope is to have the police take this course that's already in their portal and make it mandatory. It'll make it, they'll feel more comfortable with that. I absolutely get that. I mean, uh, they do have a hard job and they do some amazing things. It's just this is an opportunity for them to grow in their understanding of the society they're going to be dealing with. Which makes like in this particular situation, for example... If there was just simply a little more care, like if uh, this situation would have been would have been a different scenario, like as simple as getting obstructions out of this person's out of Marcus's way, out of just giving this person a little bit of more tender, loving care. So it's you know if if you obstruct a person that has a seizure or has epilepsy. You know, sometimes you might get kicked. Like uh, me myself, I've worked with many clients over the years who have had seizures in our office. We've had interns who have epilepsy and they've had seizures. And, you know, we do our best to make sure that we move any chairs out of their way, any tables, any any obstructions that could harm, harm themselves. And, we, and, and doing so sometimes when trying to make that person feel safe, you know, I've been kicked unintentionally, you know, um, in areas I don't want to get kicked in. And, uh, you know, it, it, but it comes with it, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't lash out at the person that's having a seizure and take it personal or wait until they come to and say, why did you kick me? Like, I know that it was not meant out of harm and they didn't, it was out of their control. So if, I understand that because I've been around this community for almost eight years. So to say a police officer who maybe not has seen that before knows how to deal with the situation, that's I wouldn't say they should think that. I, if I who am I, I'm in the community for seven plus years and still learning. Why is a police officer have that confidence to, to know that? You know. So, also mentioned uh, something about. New Error Project, uh, you wanted to get the word out about uh, through the Epilepsy Society. Uh, tell me a little about that. 
so here in Canada, most all of our epilepsy agencies uh, don't get government funding. So we're the third most epilepsy is the third most common neurological condition, and it does not get government funding. So epilepsy organizations rely on fundraising efforts, you know, different fundraising events, the public being kind to make a donation to their local epilepsy organization. Um, so what what we have done is we have created a, sh a, a shop called Epilepsy Shop, uh, epilepsyshop.org, and it's an online uh, website that uh, is a it's an e-commerce clothing store basically that you can buy merch and have and then that the shirts can, the shirts and hoodies t-shirts hoodies unisex shirts for the youth shirts for for women, uh, for, for men, for youth, all types. Um, but it's just a way that someone can buy a shirt um, for themselves, create epilepsy awareness with 100% of the proceeds supporting epilepsy organizations. We started this because when I was looking online for merchandise, I saw many, many stores out there that do sell merchandise related to epilepsy awareness but most of those proceeds weren't actually going to, you know, support the epilepsy community, you know, keep keeping programs and services free for those living with epilepsy, keeping the doors open for epilepsy organizations for clients to be able to go to, to get support. So this store, epilepsyshop.org, is meant for people to be able to buy some cool shirts and great shirts that are fashionable, but also help create epilepsy awareness as well. I'd like to thank you for taking time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Great, thank you. Of course. In this segment of our show, Linda Reinstein will be telling us about ADAO. So, can you tell me a little bit about the latest work you've done with ADAO? Sure. So as a mesothelioma widow, I've spent 10 years with others trying to work on regulations, uh, legislation, and education to prevent asbestos exposure to eliminate all asbestos-caused diseases. So we have worked in a lot of different areas, and I'm happy to say we've made a lot of progress, but we still have more work to, to do. So in that sense, uh, do you ever encounter any myths or misperceptions about asbestos, such as, we've gotten rid of it all, it's no longer an issue? So that's a great question, Cam, is that has been probably the million-dollar question I get all the time is, I thought asbestos had been banned, and when I tell them it was overturned, the EPA tried in 1989, but it was overturned in 1991, due to industry lawsuits, no one can believe it. Everyone thinks that asbestos is a so-called thing of the past. Just in 2022, more than 300 metric tons of raw asbestos were imported into the United States for the chloralkali industry, which is outrageous. So how are you reaching out to the affected communities to let them know that uh, you're fighting for change? Yeah, so when Doug Larkin and I co-founded the Asbestos Disease Awareness Organization, ADIO, we knew that the asbestos victims community didn't have a united voice. 
I mean, that's what we had experienced when our loved ones were both diagnosed with mesothelioma. So we've always used education, advocacy, and community support to hopefully bring a bring about change. And change comes slowly, as as you know, Cam, from your all the recordings that I'm sure you've done. Change comes slowly. So engaging in annual conferences, asbestos awareness week, resolution and efforts. Of course, the Alan Reinstein Band Asbestos Now Act. There's a lot of different levels of our work that continue to raise awareness. And one day, all of those different areas will cross, and we will have an end to asbestos exposure, and then finally as we work towards eliminating all diseases. So do you find that the community is typically responsive when... uh you do point out that there are still risks to asbestos, and it still is an issue. Yeah, I think most people are are happy to learn that um, they, that's a life-saving bit of information that they can put into practice, because if we've known for over 100 years that asbestos was linked to disease, suffering, and deaths, why wouldn't we do something to prevent exposure? So I think one of the basic American American Foundations is ed- we have to embrace ed- education. So the only people I ever get pushback for when I speak the truth about asbestos is for those who have liability or are responsible for this man-made disaster. Most people can, and I find that this has really been coming into focus during the last 10 years, with, with climate change disasters, whether they're fires in, in my state of California or hurricanes and tornadoes elsewhere, what we're seeing is more structures, homes, schools, and buildings that were built with some asbestos-containing product. When they are damaged or destroyed, that can cause a release of asbestos fibers into the air. And what does that really mean? It means that first responders, residents, and communities that go in to help others are now more than ever exposed to fires by way of a climate change disaster. One great example is just the recent fire in Indiana where the warehouse obviously uh, was was burning and it was huge. That warehouse contained asbestos. So from what I don't have a detailed report, but from what I read during the first week is those asbestos fibers had been found as far away as a mile and a half from the warehouse. So it just highlights, I think, the ripple effect of when there are structures that are contaminated and there there is uh, a disaster or repairs possibly, other ways where the materials become friable, which means they can be broken apart and or released, that is where exposure comes in. So... Do you have any advice for those who might be concerned about it? Any steps they can take to to minimize their risk? Absolutely. So one is I think you want to make sure that the information you you get is truly the best out there because we're all, there's just a flood of information. Um, ADO built a website called No Asbestos and it's K-N-O-W. I can send you the link uh, later on if that works for you. But I built a website that would bring in the government information so that you don't have to search out from OSHA or EPA. So you can go to one website, which is ours, and you can find out from a homeowner, from a from a worker, from a business, what are those rules and regulations, and how can you best 
prevent exposure. So one is our, our website. Two is to make sure you understand your environment. Does your home have asbestos? How about your kid's school? Are they using the AHERA regulation to manage asbestos? And then I think it's really important to know that in your community, if there was mining or manufacturing, you know, years ago, uh, and there could be a Superfund site or other areas of possible contamination, know what might be in your surroundings. So if there is, you know, some disaster that that causes asbestos to become friable and airborne, that you can protect your family. Um, what I get, Cam, frequently is people will say, oh, gosh, Linda, I was exposed. Now what do I do? And it's, it really causes a panic because by inhaling or ingesting the fibers, it can take one to fifth, sorry, 10 to 50 years before disease might present. Just because you're exposed does not mean you're going to get sick. But if you were exposed, it could take 10 to 50 years before you'd be diagnosed with an asbestos-caused disease. So I recommend that that people keep a log, write down when you might have been exposed, any details, have a, have a conversation with your general practitioner, and then go back to living your life. Your, your physician may say, I want to screen you or do some other, you know, routine first entry tests, but you can't wait for 50 years to go by and, and maybe you, you aren't diagnosed. So plan, uh, keep notes, educate yourself, have a conversation with your physician, and uh, go back to living. I also ask that people support um, our work at ADAO. We are the leading organization working on preventing exposure to eliminate all diseases. And we have a newsletter. We have all kinds of information about prevention. And we'd be happy to supply your listeners with an easy-to-follow link so they can learn more and prevent exposure in, in, their, in their home, schools, and workplaces, and also environment. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. So you're hanging with your inner circle. Maybe you're making cocktails. Maybe you're packing bowls. Even while we're distancing, it's important to remember, alcohol and cannabis each mess with your driving skills. Be cool. Make sure you and your friends get home safe. Take a cab if you need to. A few bucks could save a life. And we can do it again next weekend. A message from Arrive Alive, Drive Sober. Sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor On on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Linda Reinstein told us a little bit about ADAO and Trevor Gordon shared a little bit about his latest epilepsy work. In this segment of our show, Mary Margaret Murphy will be telling us a little bit about baby's breath. 
So, can you tell me a little about Baby's Breath? Well, certainly. Um, Baby's Breath originally uh, started out as the Canadian Foundation for the Study of Infant Deaths. So, it was established, believe it or not, 50 years ago on February 8th. So, I always say, unfortunately, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary because, you know, an organization like this, the goal is to find the reason behind SIDS, and then we no longer have to, uh, you know, be in business. But unfortunately, after 50 years, we're still looking for the cause of SIDS. Um, baby's breath, um, the study for the foundation of this, um, <laughs> the Canadian Foundation for the Study of Infant Death uh, changed their names roughly around 10 years ago to baby's breath. Um, and then at that time, we kind of changed our mandate to include not only SIDS, but stillbirth and miscarriages. So, can you tell me a little bit about some of the supports you provide to families affected by this? Oh, absolutely. Um, we provide uh, bereavement packages. So our bereavement packages are uh, customized to the situation. So we have a SIDS uh, bereavement package, we have a stillbirth bereavement package, and a miscarriage bereavement package. We also uh, provide grief counseling. Uh, right now, we're providing a one-hour uh, session. We have two grief counselors that are have experience um, in dealing with um, infant loss. And uh, in most cases, families are able to speak to someone within a week, um, at the max two weeks. I'd imagine that uh, having that sort of support helps ease some of the mental health strain that would come from from losing an infant there? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we um, do know is that um, if people, if families don't get the support that they need, their grief can manifest into anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so it's so important that um, they do get help right away. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of families that don't have benefits that actually can cover the cost of counseling. So how do you reach out to the families affected? Um, good question. A lot of families actually reach out to us. Um, we have been working with victim services from across Canada. Um, so a lot of times victim services will pass our information along to the families, uh, funeral homes. Uh, funeral homes have our brochures and again, they um, pass our information along to the families. Um, we are, um, you know, if you just put in SIDS, if you Google SIDS, we're one of the first organizations that come up. Or if you put in stillbirth we come up. So a lot of families that are looking for support uh, tend to find us that way, but um, a lot of them do come through victim services or through uh, the funeral homes. So are there any challenges in providing supports and counseling and uh, dealing yeah. with grief? Yeah, our biggest challenge is just funding. Um, it's, uh, you know, you know, before the pandemic, <laughs> you know, uh, we were, you know, you know, doing fundraising and looking at doing in-person events. And I mean, the pandemic did help us as far as um, moving us into doing virtual uh, fundraising or virtual events. 
so that people across Canada, we are a national organization, so families from across Canada can participate. Um, but yeah, our biggest challenge is fun is funding. Um, we're constantly looking um, for grants, um, you know, from other organizations, and uh, you know, we're we're always applying, you know, if, if what we're doing fits their niche. But um, yeah, funding funding is our our biggest challenge. So, in your time with Baby's Breath, has there been any case where you've been able to provide support? was a success that stands out for you um yeah there um so we there was a woman um living in kitchener and um she uh went into labor uh went to the hospital um everything was normal up until that point and um she gets to the hospital gets hooked up and there's no heartbeat um, so she loses this beautiful uh, baby girl. And uh, one of a family member um, had made a donation to baby's breath um, in memory of her daughter. And so she didn't know about us at that point, but um, decided to look us up and we were able to provide her a bereavement package. We provided her with grief counseling and it really helped her um you know, through the process. And what was interesting about this person was that she used uh, crafting as a way of dealing with her grief. And um, she that later that year did a fundraiser for us and um, raised over $11,000 for baby's breath. So she was just so grateful for the support that she received from us. And I have continued to stay in touch with her. She did a second her second annual fundraiser uh, this past year, and um, so, but I'm happy to report that she's expecting, um, and she is due uh, next month. So, you know, so very happy for her. But again, she's you know um, she is a high risk pregnancy, so the doctors are being very careful with her. Um, but you know, she. Uh, has spoken at some of our events. Um, we did a, an event last year for International Brave Mother's Day, and she helped us put that event together um, and talk to uh, the people attending about how crafting helped her with her grief. So that's just one story. Um, there's others. <laughs> like, thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. My friends, I find it remarkable the way people come together when a disability is acquired. For the fact is, it's not just something that affects one person. Friends, family, community members, all of whom take notice when a disability comes into play. And once the initial grief and shock wears off, there comes a point at which the decision has to be made. Are we going to let this be a big, insurmountable set of circumstances? Or are we going to use it to help others? Margaret described in her interview one of the great tragedies in life. And that is very true, that losing a child is always going to be something that leaves a mark on our hearts that cannot be changed. But, in light of that, taking those circumstances 
providing chance to be there with others in their journey can make the mental health strain that much easier. And the fact is, like any disability, mental health concerns are best when faced as a united front. If you feel like you're facing it all on your own, it becomes this big, scary thing. But facing it with someone who's been there, gone through the steps, maybe even come out the other side a little bit better off, you can find there's a great strength in that. And you can find the community is the great armor against those myths and misperceptions of disability life. Truth is, we all rely on someone in our lives, one point or another, whether it be for our very survival or just a word of wisdom here and there. We all need someone to count on. And taking any circumstance and making it your own, making it so the next person doesn't have to face it as daunted or as afraid, that really does make all the difference. It's a very important part of disability life, coming together and making sure that others know that healing and strengthening is possible. Together, we're better. Together, we're stronger. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me... You've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.